Hello friends, and welcome to another moment, a black history moment with Bo. And I hope you're doing well today, because today seems to be another sad epitaph in the history of black folks. And once again, we've had a mass shooting against our people. And it seems this little game of theirs goes on and on. Yesterday, three people were killed in a dollar store. Nothing but black folks. In Buffalo, 10 people killed in a grocery store. Nothing but black folks. In South Carolina, nine people people killed in church, nothing but black folks. There's a war against us going on, my friends, and it seems like we've got our head in the sand. And the sad part about it is that they keep on telling us to get over it. Get over it? How do we do that when they keep killing us? for no reason other than our skin color. How do we do that? Me, myself, I'm no longer giving anybody the benefit of a doubt. You are what you show me. And today I am going to slip into the bowels of darkness and tell you another secret. A secret that DeSantis will never let you learn in school. Today, my friends, we're going to talk about Axe Handle Saturday. And we all know what an axe handle is. And the Florida Klansmen armed themselves with them. It was August the 27th, 1960. Did you get that date? August the 27th, 1960. Exactly 63 years ago. And it was a year of sit-ins by the civil rights activists that started when four black men sat down at a whites-only counter inside a F.W. Woolworth's Five and Dime Store in Greensboro, North Carolina. You see, this was a campaign led by young African Americans, mostly college students, and it had been organized in cities all over the South, including Lexington, Kentucky, Little Rock, Arkansas, Baltimore, Maryland, Richmond, and Nashville. Surprise onlookers spit and yelled racial epithets at demonstrators and sometimes they physically attacked them. But as spring blossomed into summer, white supremacists further south having watched the protests achieve success everywhere else switched into high gear. See, what you got to remember, my friends, these images of lunch counter sit-ins fueled the civil rights movement. But when the young black people began staging sit-ins at a whites-only Woolworth counter in downtown Jacksonville, Florida, the Ku Klux Klan organized. And on the morning of what became 
notoriously known as Axe Handle Saturday, more than 200 white men welding wooden axe handles launched a vicious attack on black protesters and passerbys. President Trump was scheduled to speak in Jacksonville on the 60th anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday, and the angry local activists told him not to come to Jacksonville. In 1960, the Klan attack in Florida signaled a sharp turn in the cascading sit-in movements. From spontaneous acts of racism to coordinated white supremacist brutality. And as the protesters began to achieve more success in the Upper South than in the Deep South areas, resistance became more intense. And you see, the lunch counter sit-ins that spring had inspired young members of the Youth Council of Jacksonville's NAACP to launch nonviolent direct action of their own. Their adult leader was a man by the name of Ruthledge Pearson, a young history teacher, devout Christian, and Negro Leagues baseball player. In his history class, Pearson, a civil rights activist, would tell his students that freedom is not free. He would tell them to leave their system-issued books at home while he created new lessons for them in black history, a black man before his time. And Pearson taught his students that Hemming Park, a centerpiece of downtown shopping district that included Woolworths, was named for Charles C. Hemming, a local Civil War veteran who in 1898 donated a towering Confederate monument to the city. To instill pride, Pearson also informed them that Jacksonville was the hometown of James Weldon Johnson, the black activist and poet who wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing, properly known as the Negro National Anthem. You see, my friends, Woolworths, which was anchored on the edge of Hemming Park, had two lunch counters. One lunch counter was at the front of the store with dozens of seats near the windows, but it was marked white only. And one in the back, past the segregated water fountains and restrooms with just 15 seats and no windows, was for black customers. You see, what black people wanted everyone to know was that eating a hot dog and drinking a Coke was not the issue at all. Human dignity would be the issue, along with making segregation extremely expensive because the students knew that the stores typically responded to lunch counter sit-ins by shutting down the business altogether. And on the Saturday, August the 13th, with money in their pockets, the members gathered at a church to pray and sing before walking in discreet groups of two or three to Woolworths for the first sit-in. After they sat down, a female server came over to them and loudly announced that black people were not served at the white lunch counter. And a white manager 
then reiterated the surface point and directed the teens to a black lunch counter. And when the protesters didn't budge, he closed the lunch counter. And all the while this was going on, a crowd of white onlookers assembled and began to hurl racial slurs. And after that first sit-in, the black protesters were joined by Richard Charles Parker, a sympathetic white college student at Florida State University. Although he was not a leader, whites in the community assumed he was. Most observers always thought if whites were involved, they were the leaders of a civil rights demonstration. On Thursday, August the 28th, Pearson received an anonymous call warning that something would happen to Parker if he continued to participate. And at the lunch counter that same day, the college student found himself surrounded by construction workers carrying ropes and tools. But you know what? A neighborhood black gang known as the Boomerangs walked into Woolworths and slid up near Parker at the lunch counter. But Parker resisted until the boomerangs physically picked Parker up from his seat and hustled him out the door to safety, eventually losing the crowd of worked-up whites who were trailing them. Now, two days later on Saturday, Pearson again received calls about suspicious activity this time at Hemming Park, they saw several white men wearing Confederate uniforms. Others walked around Hemming Park carrying axe handles with Confederate flags taped to them. And there was a sign taped to a delivery type van that read free axe handles. At the meeting that morning, Pearson filled the protesters in on the threat, pushing past fear they voted to demonstrate that day at the W.T. Grant department store's white-only lunch counter. And when once again the store officials closed up rather than served them, they left and walked straight into a white mob. And that mob swung those axe handles and baseball bats at every black they saw. The attackers also went after downtown shoppers. Decades later, Charles Sears, an FBI informant who had infiltrated the local Klan in the days leading up to the attack, detailed what happened. See, the Klan strategy was this. They would have teenagers start a fight with these demonstrators, and then the adult Klansmen would come in with fists and their clubs and beat the hell out of them. And here's the kicker, my friends. Sears said the FBI put a copy of his report detailing the Klan's plans on the desk of the local sheriff, who was a former FBI agent himself. But the sheriff was supposedly out of town, and a police official reportedly found it and slipped the copy to the Klan. And as the shit got started, the local police, the sheriff's office, there was nobody. They knew it was planned, and they didn't do anything. And it turns out the Florida Times Union looked the other way as well, 
instructing photographers and reporters not to cover the sit-ins and bury a small story about the Klan assault on the black protesters inside the Sunday paper. But the Florida Star, a black-owned newspaper, filled the void that the mainstream media refused to fill. Today, Jacksonville lives uneasily with that history. The 1959 naming of a city high school after Confederate General and Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard Nathan Forrest was a flashpoint that helped spark the sit-ins. The name was not changed to Westside High until 2014. And as for Hemming Park, the mayor ordered the removal of the Confederate Memorial on June the 9th. There has always been a racial division in Jacksonville, and that is still true today. And although most people won't talk about Axe Handle Saturday, it's still a part of Florida's dirty history. Axe Handle Saturday. Have you ever heard of it? Well, now you have. Take that little bit of knowledge that you acquired today and do something with it, please. Pass it on. That's what we do. Knowledge and truth are our weapons. And the only thing that's strong enough to fight this war, beside the fact that you have to want it and are willing to sacrifice to win it, Desire makes slaves out of kings, and patience makes kings out of slaves. And not knowing your history still makes you a slave. And they will pay one of us just to kill one of us, just to say it was one of us. I have said it before, and I will say it again. Black people's pain is the world's entertainment. That music tells me that I gotta get out of here and the clock is saying the exact same thing. But before I go, I wanna leave you a message. Now, I don't wanna sound mean or unjust, but to those athletes, those $40 million a year slaves, to these athletes thinking we are listening to them if I wanted advice from someone who chases a ball, I'd ask my dog. Because the truth doesn't give a fuck what your opinion is. Peace to my ancestors and my elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day. Have a glorious day, my friends. Until next time, it's been... My honor.